Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Welcome everyone to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk. On many of our podcasts, we explore the unique challenges of providing medical care in complex environments, and tonight is no exception. Providing critical medical care over an extended time within a cave system must be one of the most challenging environments any rescue team can face. Tonight, we will learn about a 54-hour successful rescue of a seriously injured caver. We are privileged tonight to talk with Dr. Brendan Sloan from the UK Cave Rescue, and we will, who will talk us through this event. So good evening, Brendan. How are you tonight? I'm good, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for having me along. No, it's an absolute pleasure, and, and likewise, thank you for uh, giving your time to, to talk about this 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 uh, wonderful rescue that you've been involved in. Um, just before we go into the, the the event itself, could could you give our listeners just a little bit of background behind your own experience, and, and maybe a little bit um, about how you got involved through through the cave rescue um, uh, work that you do? Sure. So. Um... I started caving properly when I went to uni to study medicine back in 2000 up in Sheffield and Sheffield's close to the Peak District and there's lots of caves and I pretty quickly realised this was something I quite enjoyed Um, and I got tied up with my local team which is Derbyshire Cave Rescue uh, from about 2002 Um, so I was doing that while I was still an undergraduate. And then when I graduated and set off down my path, I went down into anaesthetics and later on critical care as well. Um, I carried on with the caving and and the rescue. And I got a consultant post in anaesthetics and critical care in in 2016. Um, And not being a trainee and not rotating anymore, I could take on some more of the um, kind of official roles within rescue. It's a bit difficult as a trainee doctor because you're always all over the place and working nights and so on. So I became the medical officer for Derbyshire Cave Rescue. And then in 2017, I was the medical officer for the British Cave Rescue Council, which is the overall um, coordinating body for all the cave rescue teams in the UK and Ireland. Uh, so I still do that. Um, still a cave rescue team member and still spend a lot more time going underground for pleasure than I do on rescues, which is exactly the way I'd like to keep it. I think, I think we can all agree on that one. That's, <laughs> that's a fantastic experience. Thank, thank you very much for that. Could, could you um, give me an outline of actually what this rescue involved? Um, what was the, the, sort of the detail of, of, of what happened? Sure. So uh, the big rescue back in back in November uh, 2021. Um, so Ogof is a absolutely fantastic cave down in South Wales, Swansea Valley area. Um, it's got three entrances, explored back in the 1940s, and there's still active exploration going on there. It's about 70 kilometres in total. And it's a, it's a fantastic combination of streamways, dry passages, climbs, boulder chokes, everything you could want. It's, it's some of the finest caving in the country. It's certainly one of my favourite caves. 
Um, the group who were involved uh, were off on a photographic trip um, and it was the bank holiday, where it was the bonfire weekend. So they were going on a relatively easy trip, planning to be out in time for a party that evening. And they went in the middle entrance, which is known as Kumdur. Now, Kumdur is quite well known for its crawls to start with. There's three fairly protracted crawls to get into the bigger stuff. And when they got into the bigger stuff, they went up into the, some high levels, which aren't quite as well traveled. They're not new, but they're not as well used. And on their way back out from there, they were walking across some boulders. And the first person walked across them was fine. And the second person walked on them and the boulders fell from underneath them and he fell down with them about eight meters into a rift sustaining some pretty pretty significant injuries um he pretty good job of um damaging his face so he broke his jaw had quite a significant hole in the basically the bottom of his mouth um which everything was kind of dribbling out of he broke a number of ribs managed to rupture his spleen as well which we found out later um and quite a nasty fracture of his uh, of his lower leg as well um but the position he was in at that point made it quite difficult for people to get down to him. Um, it was about an hour to get out to raise the alarm from, from the team and then another couple of hours before people could get down to him. And the area he was in was really quite tight, quite awkward. The boulders that had obviously, they, they'd, they'd assumed were solid and people had walked on before obviously weren't. So that provided some technical challenge in actually getting down to him. And then there was some really quite restricted passage to getting him back onto the on, onto the kind of the main route but the problem with the entrance that come in is that the entrance that come in is quite tight in places um, and there is quite a lot of boulders there's quite a lot of squeezing between things which is fine when you're mobile but it was pretty clear that he was going to be coming out in a stretcher pretty much from the outset and there was no way that he was going to be coming out of that way so part of the reason this ended up being such a protracted rescue was that the route they had to take um, was out through the top entrance which is you know, a, a good number of kilometres um, to get out. So it's significantly further to travel. And although it is easier passage, it's certainly not easy. So there's a, there was a number of uh, a number of significant challenges. A pretty pretty heavily injured guy, um, a fair way from the entrance, um, and some pretty challenging caving to do that as well. So wow. not the kind of thing that not the kind of thing that we have in our normal rescues. Yeah, and and just just as you you noted those um, the actual injuries. I mean, I would think even on the street in urban UK, that's a fairly complex casualty to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I, just from looking at it, you've got airway problems, you've got internal problems, you, you've got mobility problems. That's, this is yeah. a very complicated patient we're dealing yeah. with, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, the vast majority of the rescues we have in the UK, and, and people foresee, you know, people see caving as being a, a very dangerous sport. And there is certainly risk with it. And, you know, mm. those of us who do it uh, accept that. Um, but we get in the whole of the UK and Ireland, maybe 50 call outs a year, of which quite a number of people who are late, quite a number of normally dogs or sheep down holes and a very small number of people have actually hurt themselves and generally it tends to be relatively uh, relatively more minor stuff so stuff that tends to make people immobile as in they can't make their own way out but certainly not something like this so you know ankle fractures dislocated shoulders that kind of thing is much more common Th this catalogue of significant injuries is much less common fortunately and indeed sometimes when people do suffer injuries of this kind of severity then actually it's not a rescue it, it's a body retrieval mm. um we, we, you know which is which is very different um but you don't have the time pressure on with it of mm -hmm. trying to look after somebody who's who, who's injured and alive um so it's certainly the most complex series of injuries i can think of that i've managed underground and that's you know, 
tragically now 20 years of, uh, yeah. of cave rescue it is it's not it's not common but yeah mm -hmm. th this would excite me if it came into my a and e department yeah significantly more exciting yeah. when, when you're when you're three days away from that yeah i mean i'm, I'm just just thinking as you got this information about about the, the the possible injuries you were going to deal with in the location this cave was in. I mean, what were your thoughts going in? How, how were you prepared? It'd be really interested to think, understand yeah. how you were getting yourself prepared and, and sort of briefing yourself to, to, to attend this, this patient. So, I mean, cave rescue always works around teams. It's all about a team. And we have some very good first aiders who we train up because there can't always be a doctor who gets to the number of mm -hmm. caving doctors and paramedics in the UK is about 10. Mm -hmm. um, and we're scattered all around the country so so i i my involvement um i heard about the call out when it happened i lived several hours away so didn't immediately come and then when they sent a second call out i checked if they needed me and, and started making my way down and as i was driving down i got more information had quite a long chat with one of my colleagues who, who had been fed that information um so i was kind of dri driving down at about half nine at night thinking this this is going to be this is going to be a challenge um there is a lot of stuff here which could be a problem and there is not a lot i can do about it underground and, and often in these situations the thing that a doctor can bring is not necessarily lots of clever skills or tools because we don't have lots of stuff we can use underground in these situations but what we do have is experience and, and familiarity with it and so most of what we can offer is a degree of calmness it's difficult to be calm when what you're being presented with is something on that nature um he had already been started on oxygen and one of the first things i wanted to work out was how much oxygen we were using and how we could resupply it because it's not just as simple as just dropping another oxygen tank in we needed to get them down there mm -hmm. and that was one of the things i was quite keen on sorting i wanted to make it it was significant challenges with pain relief to start with and i wanted to make sure we had enough pain relief because i knew there was going to be a lot of stretch and moving around and again my colleagues who had been down there before and there were two docs who were down before me um although they are not anaesthetists and so their familiarity with some of the stuff um, that we, we we could use. I, was, I, I took some ketamine down with me in case I needed to use it, which fortunately we didn't. But it was that kind of if we get to a position where we're having to do things which are really quite uncomfortable and it's a real struggle, um, having a plan as to how I could deal with that. And you still always try to work with plans and having your plan A, your plan B, your plan C, your plan D. And I was trying to formulate that, although it's it is quite difficult and to some degree you need to get down there and lay eyes on what's going on i was a lot more apprehensive going down than i have been on most of the other rescues when i've known what i'm going to going on a search when you don't know what's happened can be more worrying because you genuinely don't know what you're going down to i was reassured when i saw him because he was talking and able to have a conversation with me although it turns out he has absolutely no memory of that first I, so I spent like seven hours with him he's got no memory of that at all but I could talk to him all the way through and I was much more reassured at the end of that than I was beforehand <laughs> but to some degree it's the there's no there's no one else around who's got any more experience this than I have it doesn't mean that I'm happy about it but I'm probably as good as anyone else at it and I've got a good team of people who I trust with me so if we can't do it then I don't yeah. know who can but but that doesn't necessarily take off the anxiety if someone's got a broken leg mm. broken legs a broken leg that's mm. fine it, it's the airway and the chest and the potential for internal injuries mm. is, is certainly mm. more unnerving because there's very little you can do about that and 
in a way it's it's harder to prepare yourself for something when you know there isn't a lot you could be able to do and if it all started going wrong all eyes were going to be on me and the other medical people and we might not be able to do anything to stop that yeah and i think that's interesting you're, you're right you're with special i suppose with some of the, the injuries are hard that you, you're limited aren't you so you're right mm -hmm. that, that there is not a lot that could be done what what i found really interesting from what you said was um with the experience you can bring to the scene, the one thing you can bring is calmness. That yeah. that that's really interesting because on the on a couple of previous podcasts, um, one of them was with a colleague who um, had a um, an equine in, um, in uh, uh, incident. He was going from a saucer and broke his pelvis. And when we talked to James from a patient's point of view, I said, "What's the most important thing the rescue teams brought?" And he said, "I wanted to feel they were confident." Yeah, he says that was, and um, actually a, a colleague that you will know as well, Dave Whitmore from your from yeah. your fell rescue. Um, I was interviewing Dave about his experience in major incidents, which was fantastic. And one of the things he brought out was when he's talked to patients post incident and said, "What did you find? We did good and, and not so good." Again, he came back was that the main thing the patients wanted, uh, the feedback the patients gave was that we felt that you were in control. Uh, so it's really interesting you say that as well, because this is coming out repetitively, that one of the greatest things we can bring as the, as the medical person responding is that we can bring that level of confidence to the patient, but calmness to the rest of the team, even if it's all going a bit fluttery inside. So that external, we've got this. I think, I think that I'm, I'm, one thing I'm learning from this is how important that actually is. I think um, because people think that anaesthetics is one where you don't need to talk to people. Um, and to some degree, that's true because they're asleep most of the time. But actually, if I meet you for the first time and persuade you in five minutes, then not only um, am I going to put you off to sleep, paralyze you and let someone cut you open, but also you've got the confidence that I'll be all right doing that. That requires some pretty solid communication skills. And a lot of that is promoting trust in the, in the casualty and the patient. In, in you and it's something with cave rescue we, we we are aware of and certainly south wales has some very long caves and they've had some pretty protracted cave rescues there is quite a lot of technical challenge in them and, and sometimes it can be easy to focus on the you know focus on the technical detail the rigging or the hauling or whatever um but you have still got you've still got a casualty who you need to get out and they need to be confident in what you're doing because if you're dangling them above a big drop or you're putting them in a stretcher and hauling them up they need to know that they feel safe um, and it's just going to make it a lot harder. So we had a number of discussions when we were reaching bits and it's like, how are we going to get around this bit? Well, we're probably going to have to do this. We're going to have to squeeze them up through here or, or whatever. And I would go and have those conversations with the person who was kind of, we have the controllers who kind of have oversight of the whole thing. So I was looking after the medical things, but they were looking after the, all the other bits. And we go and have a chat about how we were going to approach this particular bit and then go and tell George what we were going to do. So he knew what was coming. So some of that's also is about the kind of the managing expectations because we, we work on a kind of 10 to one rule of it takes about 10 times as long to move in a structure underground. So it does work by yourself. Mm -hmm. So even when you're relatively near the surface, you might think oh, I'm nearly out. So well, you're, you're not, you know, you're only an hour from the surface, but you're probably actually 10 hours from the surface and managing that's really important. And if they have confidence in you because you're telling them things and then it turns out to be true. So we'll get you up this pitch and then we'll have a break and, you can have a drink and a, a, a wee and we'll give you some more painkillers or whatever. And then you do that, then they believe you. Whereas if you tell them stuff, oh, you're nearly out. And then three hours later, it's painfully obvious that you're nowhere nearer. Even if you're exuding an air of confidence, they won't believe you and they'll start to distrust you. And then, well, if you if I can't believe you on that bit, I can't believe you yeah. on the rest of it. And this is something we've found from experience in previous rescues as well. That, that, that communication and being clear and honest is really, really important. 
And it's the kind of thing that you learn if you're working in a health coach, the kind of thing you do all the time. And a lot of our volunteers are, you know, just ordinary people who have no, you know, they do some first aid training, they do some cave rescue training, but they come from all walks of life, all specialties. You know, we've got, you know, engineers, teachers, farmers, builders, you know, people who are retired, students. So there's a whole breadth of experience, but a lot of them talking to someone who's injured is not something they've done. And it scares them. And so they try not to. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you could always bring because it's something that I've done plenty of. Mm-hmm. And I might be, there might actually be very little in the content, but it's the way you're doing mm-hmm. it that you generate, you generate that confidence. And it is really, really important mm-hmm. because if you lose your pay, you know, if you lose the confidence of your patient, you just made your job a whole load harder. Yeah. And I think that's so important. And I, and I think, as I say, we're seeing this repeatedly come up with conversations from, from individuals and organizations and, and patient, you know, patients themselves saying, this is so important. And as you say, it's not like a detailed medical skill, but it's, it's, it's coming, to, it's coming top of the charts every time that yeah. that's what we can bring to the table. And it's vitally important. It's really important. I, th- I think that there's more to be written and studied about this subject. Um, actually, how I don't know, I don't know how you would research it, but there's something there to be looked at closer, I think, in the future, um, because it, you know it's definitely coming out a lot that that this is the the big yeah. thing we can bring to the table. Now that that's yeah. that's fantastic. So so just as we as you were actually in at the rescue and uh, starting you know applying your skills and, and doing your job, is is there any stories you can bring out from the experience that you that you can feedback? I often find people who remember stories better than than actual processes, if that makes sense. So was there anything? any points that came out that, that were of particular interest or you found this is how we did this, this particular thing and got around it at all? I think there was, I mean, a lot of very technically challenging stretcher movements. So I, it's, it's a little disheartening because there's a, there's a big, there's a big map of the cave system on the wall of the South Wales Caving Cottage. And there's, it's all been resurveyed recently. It's a beautiful survey. You can look along it and you can follow all the passages that we went along. And it, it's really quite impressive to see how far we managed to take it. And the bits that I was involved with are really, really small, really, really small yeah. elements of that, which is a little bit disheartening when you look at it. But my goodness, the passage that we travelled through was really, really quite hard work. Um, the second um, the second stint, I... I collected him as he came up the it's about 30 meter pitch out of the streamway so there's a big old streamway element which is something we were very wary of because there's a chance of getting incredibly cold and also it's very very physically hard work on the on the team members and, and the, the people who were down in the streamway did an absolutely sterling job of both keeping him warm and keeping him dry um, and moving him at a fair old rate because when i went back underground again he was at the bottom of the pitch so we picked him up at the top of the pitch and you kind of think from there well this is easy because on a normal cage it's only about 40 minutes to the surface but there's a lot of passage you don't realize is particularly awkward and tight and so there's kind of squeezing him through these bits we're kind of rotating onto one side pushing forward a bit rotating a bit more pushing a bit more rotating back again and kind of I think he describes it as being like used like a human drill bit which is probably not entirely unreasonable and then there's a the way that the cave passage forms the 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 older stuff which was formed when all the cave is underwater you get this phreatic passage where it dissolves in all directions you get this kind of circular shape and then as the water tables drop the stream trenches in the bottom so you get this keyhole shape so the circular bit at the top and then a trench underneath and there were bits there where we were the circular bit was maybe six eight meters up in the air um but that was the only bit that he'd fit through so i have fairly vivid memories of being squashed in the top of a rift 
with George rolling over my shoulder and head with me kind of, you all right, George? Any pain there? You're doing really well. As he's being dragged across my face mm -hmm. while I'm trying not to fall down a five meter hole underneath mm -hmm. me and passing on to the next person and the next person and the next person. Mm -hmm. And looking at that, it's like, this is, in a way, this is just madness. And in another way, it's like, well, there's absolutely no other way we're going to get him out of here. Um, you can't modify the passage on that scale. I mean, that's that's mining and there's absolutely no way you can mm -hmm. modify it. He's, he's got to come out this way. But thinking, you know, comparing that with my working in intensive care with every testing thing on, on standby and a, a nurse for every patient and all the equipment you could want versus having someone being literally dragged across my face. It's a very different world. It's a very different world. And you try and explain it to people and unless they've been there and done the practices, it's really hard. It's really hard to get that over. I think the other thing was the just like anything which involved any form of vertical drop where you had to put a rope on it just took an inordinately large amount of time. South Wales caves are nominally horizontal. So if you're caving through them normally, you often don't take rope with you and you can't climb and, and hop over things. But with, obviously with a stretcher, you can't do that. So the things we were lowering and down, bringing back up again. And so you'd move 10 metres and then there'd be something that needed a rope putting on it. And so you'd set up a stretcher or you'd set up a kind of a a shelter tent and try and sort him out and make sure he's warm and then you'd move a little bit further and it was just the sheer number of people you need to do all of these things um often we just kind of push on with the team we get for a rescue up in derbyshire you know long rescues maybe 12 14 hours and you can do that with the team you start with albeit that everyone's fairly tired at the end and with this it was the you know the volume of people coming through to help us i think we had about 300 people in the end helping out um just because you rotate through people um and you know that you're going to be bringing them back down again so there was there was a lot of changeover of people people wanting to stay on and, and, and doing bits but equally having to be rotated out so they could be available again later um it, I mean, it was a it was a it was a mighty team effort and i just the particularly on my way out on my last way on my last after my second stint the number of different people who i recognized from all around the country and you realize this is really a very big job you know there's people there from yorkshire there's people from wales there's people from the mendips there's people from southeast who i know from caving and cave rescue and, mm -hmm. and socially and you realize how many people there are it's like this this is this is pretty impressive actually this is probably about half the cave rescue members in the entire country have turned out to get one guy out and that, that's yeah. that's pretty awesome yeah, it's absolutely outstanding. And I was, I was going to mention this later, but I mean, every one of you are volunteers, yeah. uh, which yeah. is truly outstanding. Um, and uh, when when we, we put the pod live, we'll make sure there's a link. So if people want to contribute to Cave Rescue or learn more about it, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll give you as much advertising Thank as you. we can through, through, through TSG. But I think that's really important. You know, everybody does this in their yeah. own time. Yeah, don't get none, none of us, you know, uh, as you know any anyone from a probationer member in a team up to the offices in bcrc and the you know the chairs of the various things all the teams are charities bcrc is a charity we get well some some of the scottish and welsh teams get a little bit of money from the scottish and welsh governments the english teams get nothing from from the english government and um, so it's all dependent on volunteers all dependent on donations and i say i absolutely take my hat off to all the people involved in that and mm -hmm. to anyone who's tied up with any of the cave rescue teams because everyone's doing this because they think it's the right thing to do they don't have to mm. we're not yeah. you know we're not paid for it they could say no they could do something easier but they don't they turn out um, in some pretty foul conditions to do with some pretty heavy stuff and they do it because it's they feel it's the right thing to do when they do it for free and that that is commendable and it makes me extremely proud to be part of that yeah you're absolutely right i, I, I mean we we met a, a few weeks ago at the the rescon conference um and, and one of the things that struck me was just how positive 
and enthusiastic yeah. and, and, and such a, a, an eagerness to learn and debate as well um, from everybody I found at the conference. Yeah. It's just, I found it hugely motivational just to be around them. <laughs> I just, I really liked their, their, it was such a positive attitude, but that, that openness to learn and then think, okay, you've, I've, I've heard it, I've, okay, I've picked up this piece of knowledge, but then how do you apply it? And every, everybody on the lessons I was involved with was talking to everybody, no matter yeah. who you were in that team, which I, yeah. I thought was com very commendable and really interesting from an organizational structure. It didn't matter where I could see it, where you sat in that structure, you had an input and everybody listened to that input, which I thought yeah. was incredibly healthy. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's an absolute, there's a wealth of experience in all, in all manner of things, um, in all manner of things. And, you know, there's things that I learned medically from speaking to other people in other teams but you know when it comes to things like engineering or radios or hauling all these kind of things there mm. are people with far far more experience than i'll ever have um and we've got a great resource there to tap into and, and, mm. and having these conferences is really important to try and share that knowledge and and again having things like that when then you meet people well then when you do get a big job like this which only comes along once every 10 or once every 20 years but actually you recognize the people who are there and you know what they're capable mm. of and you know what you're able to do and that's really helpful as well i mean it's kind of combined training is it's difficult when it's organizations which cover the entire length of the country but doing some of it as much as you can is really really important because mm. when you do have this kind of stuff having at least some familiarity is it, it just makes it easier yeah that, that that makes a lot of sense um no so just just going back to that at your rescue itself was there any specific medically medical challenges that that you you came across and and, and if there was <laughs> did you come up with any solutions at all so i mean it, his his face was quite a challenge um so most of the rescues we have um people are awake conscious able to eat and drink and swallow and talk and and do all the kind of normal things so most of the meds that we carry underground are oral medicines um, you know, we know that people need to eat and drink underground because otherwise you're going to get you know, hungry and thirsty and also you're going to start running out of energy and start getting cold. And it's difficult because, uh, you know, the nicest way he had what he referred to as the blowhole in the bottom of his mouth. So anything that you put in his mouth that comes straight up the bottom of his face, um, which is less than ideal. Um, I mean, initially we were worried about airway compromise, but actually that wasn't a problem and that and that maintained itself, fortunately. Okay. Um, but getting anything into him was really hard because if you tried to drink anything, it would just come straight mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. We do carry IV lines, although we've, I, I can think of one or two occasions when I put it in and pretty much that's just been to give people medication. Mm -hmm. So we ended up giving him a bit of fluid and a bit of sugar um, underground, which was a new one for me. And that's not something we've had to do before, to my knowledge. All the medicines we had to give him were IV, um, which again, our team members are trained to give morphine intramuscularly but they're not trained to do IV stuff and having someone who doesn't do anything medical putting cannulas in it's mm. yeah, quite the ask um, but we ended up giving far more than we normally would so we ended up giving him um, quite a lot of IV morphine we took down IV paracetamol which actually worked really well and as a result we've got a little bit of that as well because that seemed to be quite a good um, quite a a good non-sedating painkiller. So I use it a lot at work, but it's not something I'd ever thought of underground because why wouldn't you be able to swallow? Mm. Except in this one when you can't. We ended up giving him IV antibiotics because we were worried about getting infection in his face as well. And again, we carry antibiotic tablets, but we don't normally carry IV stuff. And that's something that quite a few teams have now got a couple of vials just, just, just in case we end up with something similar again. And pain relief as well. So a lot of the, a lot of the um, CAS care stuff that we do is based around the mountain rescue 
uh, CASCARE certificate. But in mountain rescues, very often, if somebody's been injured, once they've been picked up by a team within three or four hours, they're normally being handed over to an ambulance or air ambulance or, or, or indeed or even in hospital, depending on where they are. Um, so redosing things became more important. It's something we've done a bit of work on in the past about how often you can redose people, because knowing how much you can give to start with is great, but knowing when you can repeat it's really important. And keeping a track of that, bearing in mind the medicals were turning over as well, was really important as well. We used the um, very highly sophisticated method of a notebook and a pencil. Um, but we also communicated it to the surface. So when you went underground, you were told what time he was going to be due having his next dose of paracetamol or antibiotic, which is in a way quite a crude way of doing it, but actually quite an effective way. The casualty cards by the end of it were, were fairly foul and covered in mud and almost unreadable. So having stuff being transcribed as it came out made it quite helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is monitoring as well. Mm. So again, in my anaesthetic life, it's all about the monitoring. And underground, we had a SATS probe, which kind of worked on occasions. And we had a thermometer inside the casualty bag, and that was it, um, because nothing else works. So we, we could feel a pulse, we could talk to him, we could assess his conscious level, um, you could do a bit of capillary refill, but to be honest, the bits which are exposed are quite cold and the bits which aren't, aren't too bad, but you don't really want to go delving in all the time. But there's a lot to be said for having a conversation with people, because if they have a conversation with you, even if they don't remember it afterwards, then that's actually quite a good way of monitoring how somebody is. So we did, you know, we did check his pulse quite regularly and it was going up to start with and then stabilized off at about 120 and then his sats were anywhere between 86 not on any oxygen and 98 on a few liters mm -hmm. um but again you can't really keep the sats probe on the whole time when you're moving because it'll either fall off or you have to wrap it up so much that you can't see it and therefore there's no no real point in having it mm -hmm. so it's an interesting balance of how often do you check and how often do you kind of intervene properly on that and mm. how much do you just carry on talking with somebody and see how they are which which is an interesting one because again most of the most of the casualties we get you know you might have a broken ankle and not be able to walk on it and it's extremely painful and you might need to come out the stretcher for that but you're not likely to be physiologically kind of affected by that um you know your heart rate will probably be up because it's painful but it, you're not likely to be compromised by it whereas Whereas George certainly was, and certainly when we hauled him, every time we went vertical, he felt massively sick and indeed vomited quite impressively on, on the big pitch up. And as soon as we lay him horizontal, it got better. And some of that might be motion sickness because people do get motion sickness and stretches, but I suspect some of that was probably hypovolemia as well, kicking it, um, particularly when we then found out that he had ruptured his spleen and a fairly significant, uh, fairly significant internal bleeding. You know, it, but then it's very difficult because the only way you can get somebody out in these situations is to haul them. And the only way you can do that is vertically because it doesn't fit. So some of it is monitoring what your vital signs are. And some of it's, well, you're going to have to come out this way anyway. So we're just going to have to kind of suck it up and try and yeah. rectify it at the top, which we, which goes against everything, which goes against yeah. everything I do at work. Uh -huh. um, but it's exactly the way that you have to work in these in these austere environments. You don't have the luxury of being able to make everything perfect before you before you do something. Yeah, no, that, that that's that's really interesting. I, th I think what I picked up from that is is, is having the having the conversation again. You you're doing a level of consciousness. You you doing you doing AVP you subconsciously, aren't you? But you're yeah. right that if that conscious if that conversation ebbs and flows, it's telling you so many things physiologically, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and it's so something you can apply with no tools isn't it but it's understanding what's happening deeper as, as that conversation yeah. fluctuates for good and bad isn't it i think that tells us a lot Absolutely. Uh, 
And I think the thing I've picked up from that, and this comes out a lot from when we talk to people who work, who work in, in remote locations and austere environments, is how you have to adjust from the norm. As you said, normally and, and rightly, you, you're going to give oral medications because nine times out of 10, that's what you deal with. But yeah. suddenly that's gone. I think having that ability to adapt, but adapt effectively is so important for anybody who's going to put themselves in these positions because <laughs> plan A, it's highly unlikely, is it, <laughs> on most occasions? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I, I think if you're going, and, and it doesn't matter where you work. And you know, I've I've done a little bit of um, a little bit of hospital anaesthesia out in Ghana in, in a very different health setup, um, and you're presented with some stuff, and that's what there is. And and for all you may be happier doing something else, well, it ain't there. So you you, you can like it or you. you you can want something else all you like, but it's not going to be there. And it's the same with the underground stuff. You, you, I think this is the other thing is, is you know, with, with being a cave rescue doctor, and this is something I've had a chat with some of the guys out in the European Cave Rescue Association as well. And it's something we all kind of agree on is that first of all, you need to be a caver and then you need to be a cave rescue and then you need to be a cave rescue doctor. Because if you don't understand the environment and what the rescue involves, mm. your medical advice is not going to be great because it's not going to be compatible with that. And that's probably true if you're a, medic down in the antarctic or up on the top of a mountain or you know trying to do stuff out on a on a you know a fast moving boat in the middle of the north sea you, you yeah. can't do all the normal things they just won't work so you have to be adaptable to it and know what's really important and know what's nice but not essential yeah you know i think that's so important and because and I know me as working as a medic where I used to take advice from, you know, what we call topside doctors or our, our military doctors working. Um, we would be remote, they'd be at base. And if they, if they didn't, if they couldn't empathise with where you were, it was really frustrating. Yeah. It was almost like, no, you're not. I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're so right. You've, you've got to have somebody has that has the empathy for where you are. Um, so I think one thing I would say to, I suppose, to any doctor looking to advise in that is understand what the people on the ground are going through, because yeah. your advice has got to be reflective of the limitations they'll be under. If it's not, that becomes incredibly frustrating. I always found, uh, but yeah. when you, it's, it's interesting when you got somebody who does know what you're dealing with and, and the limitations, and and can empathise what you where you're trying to work with. It's such an easy conversation as well, isn't it? And yeah. the advice. It's so much easier to take on and then apply as well. Uh, yeah. I, it's, I think I find that bit really important when you're looking at the medical team working, you know, the advice coming in, the people on the ground, that, that sort of closed loop of the understanding and then applying the appropriate skill is, is quite significant, I think, um, with, with yeah. remote medical teams. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's 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 really fascinating. And I, I must say, I take my hat off to anybody who, uh, as, as part of a long rescue with a seriously injured casualty, who has to take them vertical at any point. Uh, I'd, I'd have been interested to see your own pulse rate as you were doing that. So uh, I was, I was at the top. <laughs> I was at the top. It was one of my, um, it was one of my paramedic colleagues who got the pleasure of jockeying him up. Right. And mostly avoiding being vomited on. Mm -hmm. We got him as good as we could, and. Mm -hmm staying in the streamway wasn't going to do him any good because it mm. the streamway is cold I mean, that's, that's yeah. the other big one with the caves is that caves are cold and they're hostile environments and staying where you are is not really an option um and one of the big worries about the streamway was the fact that he was going to get really cold so having him well insulated was really important we spent a lot of time kind of trying to wrap him up as much as we could and we spent a lot of time developing our kind of an anti anti-hypothermia stuff as much as we can but if you're in an environment where it's 10 degrees and there's a massive draft whistling through and there's a big streamway below you, 
your stuff might be good but it's mm. not going to be perfect yeah um and that's the kind of time where you're gonna well you yeah. can't get them any better so let's just go for it and that's the reason i was at the top to try and mm. make sure that we could um sort them out if he if if there were issues when he got to the top and actually what happened when he got to the top and lay flat and gave him some more pain relief is that mm -hmm. he was very glad for that bit to be over yeah. mm -hmm. but was no physiologically worse than he was when we started wow. which was a big relief yeah mm. yeah absolutely um, no it's ab absolutely fascinating uh just just on on, on the wider area of uh, working mm -hmm. in osteo medicine you know given the experience you've got from this rescue and and your, your wider cave rescue experience is, is there a couple of points you could bring out if somebody wanted to get involved in this area of medicine to, to help them prepare for it? Is there a couple of points you could maybe give them to say, think about this or maybe do a little bit of pre preparation in this area that could help them prepare to, to come into the world of osteo medicine or, or get better in it? I mean, I, I think you need to understand the environment you're going into. Um, you know, Cave Rescue is pretty austere, but I wouldn't say that means I could go and work in a desert environment because that's not one I'm familiar with. There would be things that would be similar in terms of not having a lot of equipment, in terms of um, it being very challenging. And there are similarities, but you need to understand the environment you're going into and you need to be at least to some degree comfortable in that before you can start you know, being able to do decent medical care mm -hmm. um and, and it doesn't really matter what that environment is but you know if you take a military thing if you're dealing stuff while under fire you need to be happy being under fire or happy as you mm -hmm. can be before you can start doing any medical work on it mm -hmm. if you're not happy with that no matter how good your skills are you're going to be out of your depth good clinical skills and doing the basics right i think is really important because you may not be able to do much more than that so you need to be able to do that um because a lot of the time doing the basics right whether that's pain relief, whether it's stopping bleeding, whether it's confidence, whether it's being able to make a decision about evacuation, because actually that's what needs to happen, um, and monitoring with very little other than your hands and your eyes, that will get you a really long way. If you're reliant on lots of fancy technology, that's fine until the technology doesn't work or isn't there. Hmm. Um, and I think the other one that's really important, and this, this was something which was done more by the control team than myself but care of your other team members it's an austere environment which means that you are at risk and this is why you with cave cave rescue you need to be a caver first you need to be able to manage yourself in that environment and look after yourself because if you don't and you don't look after your team members you're not going to have one casualty you're going to have more and that's you know multiples harder mm -hmm. um so we we made a real conscious effort to make sure that team members were cycled through and that they were fed and watered and that they were okay and that they didn't get redeployed until they had you know at least had some rest because mm -hmm. if you don't do that you run the risk of breaking everyone and then the whole thing becomes either a lot slower or you end up with more casualties and the fact that we had that many people underground and no one else got injured is is as a result of the you know phenomenal work done by the surface controllers mm -hmm. making sure that people were cycling through yeah and i, and I think that's probably the the one of the other great stories behind this whereas we um we, we got our patient out successfully and, and and everything was fine um 300 people involved and, and nobody else got injured probably yes. nobody fell out with each other hopefully um <laughs> but that that is a massive logistical challenge and you're right yeah. when people are so tuned into a rescue sometimes they can overload themselves and and, and 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 create problems but i think that ability to manage that number of people 
in such a high stressful environment as well. It's, it's an amazing success story and, and shows a lot of robustness to the organizations, the way it structured its, its management and its command systems as well. That, that's quite, that's very impressive. I mean, some of that's come from experience when people have worked themselves to the point of exhaustion before. Uh, this doesn't come by chance. It comes with practice and it comes with you know experience from how it's worked. But it's interesting because speaking to people, and I certainly felt the same of, you, you you have a stint of so we did kind of stints of six hours when we when we got full teams in, um, and at the end of that someone had come down and you'd hand over and then you, it was your turn to go out and there were people who clearly didn't want to mm. it's like I'm fine I feel all right and I, I had that I'm, it's fine I'll, I'll go out because I know I need to come in again but I feel mm. okay and by the time you'd got back to the surface which is another hour and a half caving mm. you realise actually yeah if I'd turned around now my journey out would have been a lot more challenging mm-hmm. you know and actually there's some proper caving involved in this and this is where people have problems so it's interesting people felt okay when they were being turned around but by the time they got to the surface they recognized it was the right thing to do mm-hmm. um, the only exception being right at the end when people were due to come out and they were half an hour from the entrance it's just like well you may as well stay in because everyone's in here and it'll make it quicker yeah. and to be mm-hmm. honest by the time you get out you're probably going to be being chased yeah. by a stretcher anyway mm-hmm. yeah um but that, that was that was really important and i say that was I can't take any of the credit for that. That was the surface control team um, being absolutely on it with that. Yeah, I think that that's that's just such an amazing success story, isn't it? That that underpins everything yeah. and complemented the, the the success of, of bringing out a patient, George, uh, uh, in, in such a good state. Really, it's fantastic. Yeah, so, so, just one question to finish off, and we ask this to everybody <laughs> on on THG Talk, and we we get some fantastic answers, but. If you could only, if you could pick one piece of medical equipment that you would always take with you, with you, regardless of where you are, what, what do you think it would be? Regardless of where you are. See, I, I was thinking of this from regardless of which mm. cave rescue I was yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would take our casualty bag. I, I've been caving in the tropics where the underground temperature is thirty degrees, mm. but anywhere in the UK, and to be honest, anywhere in Europe. Um, it's cold. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it's cold enough that you notice it's cold. Some of it's okay, but when you stop moving, you notice it. Mm-hmm. Hypothermia is the thing we really, really, really massively worry about. And this, I know mm-hmm. it's a subject dear to, dear to your heart as mm-hmm. well. Um, but being on it from the beginning, mm-hmm. which we were with George, and we have been in other rescues, stopping people getting cold makes a massive difference and gives you the chance of a casualty being mobile. And if you mm-hmm. can keep them mobile, you've won. If you let mm-hmm. them get cold and they get tired, <clears throat> then you've, you've lost it and you've made it a lot harder so i would um i would have something to to manage hypothermia and i'd, prob- I'd probably choose our casualty bag because we've got a nice new light effective one but um something to manage that no i and think that- I, I would be happy with that yeah that that makes so much sense and yeah I, I can't agree more that the prevention of hypothermia is so much better than the cure isn't it um but and and then it's that the ability once you are managing that state is to, to keep on top of it, isn't it? And, and and I think you're right there. If you don't have that, you can't insulate without good insulation, can you? Um, no. So you have to have it. Uh, and I think that's what we're finding from people who say, what would be the one thing? It's different with the people in different um, areas, what they would say, yeah. but it's where they, they tend to take things like they just can't compromise with anything else. They need yeah. this specific tool because nothing else will do that job. Uh, and that, that again, that seems to be a trait that's coming through. There's very specific things people pick because they, they you know, they can improvise a lot of things, but not this, which, yeah. which is which is quite interesting. No, that that's that's fantastic. Look, 
uh, Brendan, that was absolutely wonderful tonight. We we could talk for many hours on on, <laughs> on the details of this rescue and and, and your wider work in in cave rescue. Um, if people do want to get involved, um, you know, either medically or would just like to give you money, uh, which is always good as well. Um, where's the best place to um, to contact? Just to, to so if you search online for the British Cave Rescue Council, that will take you to the main page. Um, BCRC doesn't do any rescues itself. We, we, we coordinate the teams. So within that, there's a map of all the teams around the country um, who are based all over the place um, and links to their pages. And it's probably via the teams that you'll be best place to get mm -hmm. in touch with people. Um, and each of the teams are charities. And if people wish to give them money, then the teams will be extremely grateful for anything that people are able to offer. Um, so if you, but if you go through the BCRC web page, then that will direct you to whichever your local team is, wherever in the UK or Ireland you live. Okay, fantastic. What we'll do then is uh, when we, we put the, this podcast live, we'll make sure we put the links and everything onto that so, so people can, can go direct to that. Fantastic. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, look, Brendan, thank you so much again for your time tonight. It, it truly is a wonderful story. Um, I think of all the the interviews we've done through TSG Talk, it's certainly probably the most complex and longest rescue we, we, we've ever covered. And to get such a successful um, result from it, uh, because I believe George actually has now joined Cave Rescue. Is he's that he's joined Cave Rescue. He's, yeah. he's uh, back diving, he's back caving, he's back swimming. Um, yeah. So yeah, you're not quite back to full form yet, but right. well on the way. I mean, so we've delivered. you've delivered somebody who's got such a high quality of life and i think it's so impressive he's now given back as well which Absolutely. is so so commendable and uh, he certainly has a story to tell that's that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> fantastic so so thank you very much for 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 again your time this evening if you would like any questions um about our podcast tonight we'll, we'll put all the links and everything on on to um our LinkedIn page, and uh, we'll also have the podcast up on our website, which is um, tsgassociates.co.uk. So please feel free to ask any questions, and we'll do our best to get back to you with, with the appropriate answers. And thank you once again for listening to, uh, this evening, and we'll be back soon with another uni unique subject and colleague. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.